host, Jessica Fernando, and this is One Weird Chick. We all know the story. Say his name five times into the mirror, and the Candyman will appear brandishing his trademark hook hand. While the Candyman story has elements of well-known urban legends, like Bloody Mary and Hookman, the origin of this terrifying tale actually stems from novelist Clive Barker's short story, The Forbidden. The Forbidden appears in Barker's six-part anthology series called The Books of Blood, and details the story of a young grad student named Helen Buchanan. While photographing graffiti in a rundown council housing project, as part of her thesis statement, Helen catches wind of a story about a series of gruesome murders committed by someone with a hook hand. While photographing graffiti in a rundown council housing project, as part of her thesis project, Helen catches wind of a story about a series of gruesome murders committed by someone with a hook for a hand. She becomes caught up in a true tale of horror when the Candyman reveals himself to her after she summons him in a mirror by saying his name five times. The Forbidden was so well received that Barker became an overnight sensation even being hailed by the master of scare himself, Stephen King, as, quote-unquote, the future of horror. It wasn't long after its release that The Forbidden spawned a trilogy of films, aptly named Candyman. The title film Candyman was first released in 1992, with Candyman Farewell to the Flesh and Candyman Day of the Dead being released in 1995 and 1999, respectively. A reboot of the film, produced by none other than Jordan Peele, would debut this summer in theatres worldwide. As we've all come to know, movie adaptations of books often differ. The forbidden adaptation to the big screen was no different. Barker's short story was set in Liverpool, England. While the original story centred around segregation and the culture of the poor urban areas in a white neighbourhood, Candyman director Bernard Rose was so shocked by Chicago's large amount of prejudice in African-American neighbourhoods that he decided to set the movie there instead. Assisted by members of the Illinois Film Commission, Rose scouted locations in Chicago and found Caprini Green, a housing project notorious for its poor construction, violence, and high robbery rates. This Americanization of the story turned Candyman into an interracial love story where the residents of the projects become the victims of the killer. The movie garnered a huge amount of attention in the casting agencies. Eddie Murphy was the original choice for the role of the Candyman, but filmmakers could not afford him at the time. Legendary Broadway actor Tony Todd, who was a statuesque, 
six foot five and physically fit, scored the leading role instead. While the Candyman's background is unknown in the original story, Todd came up with the backstory for the character in the film. But I hear you ask, why is this backstory so important to Todd and to the film creators? Well, according to an article in the Washington Post, quote, in the 70s, black actors essayed a number of horror roles, notably Blackula and Blackenstein, but those were simply color twists on movie archetypes. And though black actors have appeared with increasing frequency in horror films, the hook-wearing Candyman is the genre's only black icon. That was important to me when they first presented the role, Tony admits. And it was one of the selling points. It's a big responsibility being the only one of anything in 1995." End quote. What made Candyman a boogeyman gets more explicitly explained in the second film, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh. Set in the 1890s, the film tells the tragic story of Daniel Robitaille, a cultured son of slaves who is hired to paint a portrait of a white landowner's daughter. When they fall in love and she becomes pregnant, Robitaille is pursued by a hateful white mob that cuts off his hand and smears his body with honey. And a huge swarm of bees then attacks him. A mirror is held to his face so he can watch his own demise. According to an article in the Washington Post, quote, the horror of racism is juxtaposed with Candyman's eternal search for love, a subtext of gothic romance that makes him at once terrible and tragic, a killer who died for love, whose eyes are filled with both hate and sorrow. Come with me and sing the song of misery, Candyman begs the woman at the heart of each film. It's a plant that makes him sympathetic despite the terrible things he does to other people." End quote. Much of Candyman's quote-unquote history arose out of improvisations on the set of the first film. Tony Todd is quoted as saying, quote, However long the series continues, I would like for the Candyman to become more and more human. The arc of the story is where Candyman finally finds peace and happiness as best as he can. It's like a re-entry after he's been homeless and alone for so long." End quote. Now here's where things take a little bit of an interesting twist. While the films are works of fiction, the original Clive Barker story is said to have been inspired by the real-life brutal slaying of Ruthie Mae McCoy. Born into an African-American family in Hughes, Arkansas in 1935, Ruthie Mae McCoy was one of eight in the family. The McCoy family moved to a small South Side Chicago neighborhood when she was still a child. Ruthie's father loaded coal into wagons in various yards, earning a small wage, but not nearly enough for a large family. As a teenager, Ruthie attended Phillips High School for a brief time 
but left during her 10th grade to take care of her siblings. When Ruthie was in her early 20s, she began showing signs of an undiagnosed mental illness. The relatives say they don't know the exact nature of her illness and could only offer hazy accounts of how it showed itself. She talked to herself and would burst with anger unexpectedly. During the 1950s, mental illness was largely under-researched and more often than not, went untreated. Given the McCoys' low-income status, even if they had understood what Ruthie was going through, it would have been likely that they could not afford the treatment. As an adult, Ruthie found work as a laundromat attendant and a housekeeper, but due to her declining mental health, it was difficult for her to maintain employment. Ruthie began to rely on government assistance to get by. A devout Baptist, Ruthie's mother raised her and her siblings in the church. Eventually her brother, Haywood, became a preacher. He attributes all of Ruthie's mental health issues to her, quote, stepping out of God, end quote. At the age of 27, Ruthie fell pregnant with her first and only child. In 1962, her daughter, Vernita, was born. Ruthie cared for her daughter as best as she could, but her untreated mental health issues saw Ruthie hospitalized several times during Vernita's childhood. Vernita was placed in the care of relatives and friends while Ruthie was treated. Doctors were finally able to prescribe her the medication she so desperately needed. However, when released, she quickly ran out and couldn't afford to have it refilled. When Vernita was in her early 20s, she became pregnant with her first child, giving birth to a beautiful baby girl. Unfortunately, in 1983, she was arrested on an aggravated battery charge and was sent to Cook County Jail. Ruthie was left to care not only for herself, but also for her one-year-old granddaughter. In the same year, the basement Humboldt Park apartment that Ruthie had been living in flooded, forcing her and her granddaughter out onto the streets. Unable to afford housing, Ruthie applied for emergency Chicago Housing Authority accommodation. According to the popular podcast, My Favorite Murder, quote, The ABLA Homes is one of Chicago's public housing projects that's located in the near Westside neighborhood. These letters, ABLA, stand for each of the four developments on the complex. Jane Addams Homes, Robert Brooks Homes, Loomis Court, and Grace Abbott Homes. They provided 330 low-income housing units, but at its height, the ABLA had 3,596 units and housed as many as 17,000 residents. During the 80s, Grace Abbott Homes was made up of 233 two-story row homes and seven high-rise buildings. They were home 
to roughly 3,600 African-American people." End quote. According to the 1980 census, the average yearly income for families in Grace Abbott homes was approximately $4,500 a year. The only moderately wealthy residents were the drug dealers who would commandeer empty apartments and use them for criminal activity. In 1986, the city of Chicago reported that the violent crime rate for the city was approximately 22.9 crimes per 1,000 residents. The crime rate at the ABLA and the Grace Abbott Homes was approximately 47.8 violent crimes per 1,000 residents. Needless to say, Grace Abbott Homes had the reputation for being the most dangerous building in all of the projects. Aware of the housing complex's reputation, Ruthie wrote not one, but two letters to the CCA in an attempt to better her situation. Despite her best efforts, Ruthie was placed at apartment 1109 in Grace Abbott Homes. According to the article, they came in through the bathroom mirror, published in the Chicago Reader, quote, The building's features were dark and contained malfunctioning elevators, pitch-black stairwells, and cocaine and PCP addicts on nearly every floor, end quote. In her first two years in Grace Abbott Homes, Ruthie shared her two-bedroom apartment with Vernita, who had completed her jail sentence in mid-1983. Vernita's now two children, and her boyfriend, Louis Butler. Ruthie and Louis didn't see eye to eye. Quote, At first she liked me, but then she started comparing me with Vernita's father. The way Vernita's father had deserted them after she was born was Ruthie's favorite subject. She thought black men were all no good, all they wanted to do was flirt and run around." End quote. In 1985, largely because of these tensions, Vernita, Lewis, and the children moved out. Vernita's departure depressed Ruthie. She grew more hateful towards other people in the project. Police had to intervene several times when Ruthie got into a scrape with neighbors. At approximately 8.45 p.m. on Wednesday the 22nd of April, Chicago police received a frantic 911 call from Ruthie. She stated, quote, I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street, and some people next door are totally tearing this down, you know. End quote. When prompted for more information, Ruthie added, quote, they throwed the cabinet down. They want to come through the bathroom. End quote. The dispatcher struggled to understand what help Ruthie was requesting, so he dispatched a 12th district car to answer a disturbance with a neighbor complaint. In the 20 minutes it took for police to arrive, 911 received two additional calls. At 9.02 p.m., 
another 911 call came in concerning apartment 1109. It was from a woman who said she had been walking through the hallway and heard gunshots from the apartment. At 9:04 p.m., another neighbor called to report gunshots and screaming coming from Ruthie's apartment. Two more police cars were dispatched to the scene. Four officers in total arrived at Ruthie's door at approximately 9:10 p.m. and found the apartment door locked. They pounded on the door, but there was no answer. Thinking that Ruthie may be being held by her intruder, the officers instructed the 12th district to phone Ruthie's landline. From outside the apartment, the officers could hear Ruthie's phone ring and ring, but no one answered. Two of the officers left the housing complex and drove to the project office to get the master key for apartment 1109. Upon their return, they discovered that the key didn't work. The police attempted to question neighbors, but found the apartment next door vacant. Feeling as though they had exhausted all of their options, at 9:48 p.m., the police left without confirming whether or not Ruthie was okay. The following evening, Police received a call from Deborah Leslie, a neighbor of Ruthie's. Deborah told them that Ruthie would stop by her apartment each morning on her way out of the building to say hello, and then again on her way back in. Deborah explained to police that Ruthie hadn't been by, and when she heard of the police's visit last night, was worried about the safety of her neighbor. According to the article, they came in through the bathroom mirror. Quote, About a half dozen police officers and four or five CHA security guards arrived on the scene. Their knocks and calls from McCoy went unanswered. Most of the police officers thought they ought to break down the door. Neighbors say, but the security guards discouraged them. One of them. Raised the possibility of the tenant suing if the police broke in, and if you bust down the door, the security guards told the police officers, "You will have to get someone up here to secure it." The police officers shrugged and left for a second time. End quote. The next day, Deborah Leslie decided to inform the project office of her concerns about Ruthie. At approximately 1 p.m., a project official arrived at apartment 1109 with a carpenter, who drilled through the lock. When they opened the door, they found Ruthie lying on her side, in a pool of blood on the bedroom floor. She had been shot four times. One bullet had passed through her left shoulder, and another passed through her left thigh. A third had entered the right side of her abdomen, pierced her liver, and exited the left side of her abdomen. The fourth and fatal bullet passed through her right upper arm, then entered her chest and severed the pulmonary vein. The cause of death listed by the coroner stated that Ruthie died of internal bleeding. 
she was pronounced dead at Cook County Hospital at 4.35 p.m. Friday, April 24th, though she had passed away two days earlier. Initially, police concluded that Ruthie had more than likely known her attacker, since there were no signs of forced entry. However, it was later discovered that Ruthie's killers had entered her apartment through her medicine cabinet in her bathroom. They had removed the cabinet in the adjacent apartment, broke through Ruthie's cabinet, and climbed through the wall into her apartment. A groundbreaking story of danger in the projects and police neglect like this should have been in the headlines for weeks. But in the case of Ruthie Mae McCoy, the story quickly faded away. The article they came in through the bathroom mirror explains why the public took little notice. Quote, in CHA towers, babies have been tossed out of windows and teenagers shoved down elevator chutes. Intruders sometimes burst right through apartment walls to rape and murder tenants. So what's so unusual about a medicine cabinet murder? News of who got killed and how quickly buzzed through the Grace Abbott high-rises. Not many were shocked, says an Abbott janitor. You get desensitized by what goes on here every day. It's animalism over here. That's the prevailing life condition of the people." End quote. As for the police officer's failure to enter Ruthie's apartment, sadly, emergency services responses often varied depending on the location of the person calling 911. For instance, the death of Nancy Clay, a white, suburban, white-collar worker, prompted weeks of media coverage and a city council investigation. The performance of the police in Ruthie's case didn't even merit a departmental investigation. Had the 911 calls come from somewhere other than a housing project, the officers, perhaps, would have forcibly entered the apartment to check on the resident. Making this serious lapse in services even more tragic was Ruthie's recent determination to make a new life for herself. Prior to her death, neighbors stated that Ruthie had turned over a new leaf. She had been less spiteful and argumentative, often even pleasant, she would leave the project early most days and said she was going to school to obtain her GED. Ruthie was also on the verge of escaping the projects. Two months before her death, with the help of a social security field representative and staff members at the Mount Sinai Psychiatric Center, Ruthie had been approved for Supplementary Security Income, SSI federal aid for the physically and mentally disabled. This raised her monthly income from the $154 she had been receiving from general assistance to $340. SSI was paid retroactively from the date of Ruthie's first application. Ruthie had applied in September, so the first check she was sent 
dated February 10th, was $1,979. Ruthie intended to use most of her windfall to get out of public housing. But she also bought a few things, a plain winter coat, a few other clothes, and some inexpensive household items. People in the projects, often very observant, may have noticed. Detectives think the killers invaded her apartment in hopes of finding the cash. The buildings were designed with pipe chases behind the medicine cabinets to prove easy access to the plumbing. If something's leaking, janitors simply have to remove the medicine cabinet to check the pipes. Ruthie's killers came through the opening in her bathroom wall from apartment 1108. The medicine cabinet from apartment 1108 was confiscated by the state attorney's office as evidence. Ruthie's cabinet was never found, and it's not known whether it was in place before the intruders came through the wall. Ruthie's landline phone was one of a few items that were stolen during the murder. The fact the phone was taken is intriguing, because if you remember from earlier, the dispatcher called her number the night she was shot, and the police officers outside her door heard the phone ring. So the phone had to be stolen after the police left that night. It also means that the killers might have still been on the 11th floor when the police arrived, hiding out in an apartment, perhaps the adjacent one, and returned after the police left to take everything worth stealing from Ruthie. Eventually, the police arrested two men for Ruthie's murder, both of whom were residents of ABLA. Edward Turner, who was 19, was arrested in his row house apartment a few days after the killing. Unemployed, Turner had no previous convictions, but had been out on bond on a charge of unlawful use of a weapon. On June 9th, police arrested 25-year-old John Honduras after getting a tip he was in a ninth-floor apartment of an Abbott high-rise, a block from the one that Ruthie used to live in. Officers found him hiding under a bed. Also unemployed, Honduras had previous convictions for robbery and possession of a stolen vehicle. A few relatives attended the church service held for Ruthie May McCoy on the south side of Chicago on April 30th. Quote, Life was hard for Ruthie May, end quote, noted the bulletin distributed at the service. Even though her murder didn't attract much attention at the time, Clive Barker's story, The Forbidden, ensured that the memory and life of Ruthie Mae McCoy was immortalized. That way, we'll never forget about her. Thank you for joining me for another episode of One Weird Chick. I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and until next time, stay spooky. This episode of One Weird Chick was written, produced, and edited by Jessica Fernando. 
Today's story was edited by Bethany Dickens Asaf. One Weird Chick's opening theme was created by Brielle Johnson, and logo was designed by Lauren Adams. Follow One Weird Chick on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn for more.